Hello, and welcome to the Podcast of Power, a She-Ra and the Princesses of Power companion podcast. I am one of your hosts, Nero. And I'm the other host, Jane. And today, it's email time. It's We finished season four, and you know what that means. It's time to catch up with our audience's thoughts on the season. Yes, and quite a lot of thoughts you've had over uh, over the past month or so. Well, a couple months, I suppose. And... Yeah, we're we're quite excited to to kind of dig deep into uh into all this stuff. Now, of course, uh, as always, uh, this is a spoiler zone episode in its entirety. We will hold nothing back here. So, if you are not finished with uh, the series, I would suggest perhaps skipping this week and, and waiting until we start season five. Yes, this is this is going to be entirely spoiler talk. Um, well, I guess not entirely, but you know we're 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 not going to mince words here. We'll we'll still avoid the the classic vault topics as much as we can, you know, restrain ourselves from. But generally speaking, season five is not off limits here. No, uh, but I guess before we get into the emails, we can just briefly talk about season four itself and our thoughts on it. Uh, now that we're done. When I was, when we were starting the podcast, I think I said season four might be my favorite season, and I think that might still hold true so far. Yeah, so far I think that's definitely true. I mean, we all know the drill at this point. You know, me and Nero, we're suckers for a good tragedy, and season four is just a big Greek tragedy all the way down. It's it's wonderful. Um, the The character work is amazing. The... Uh, the pacing, I think, is top-notch in pretty much all cases, with, you know, a couple of exceptions. But but generally, the pacing's really good. The, like, uh, the direction they take stuff is very interesting. Uh, the parallels they draw and the shifting of perspective from the earlier seasons uh, to, to where they are in season four, you know, who the principal characters are kind of shifts a little bit. It's all really interesting stuff. Yeah, I think there are so many standout episodes in this season, despite how shaky it starts out. I mean, you've you've got Hero, you've got the uh, the Light Hope and, and Adora bottle episode, you've got like Princess Scorpia. You have the entire back half of this season is just bangers all the way down, pretty much. Oh yeah, it's just like they. I mean, you know what it is like. They had they had to balance out the rest of the season, so they had to make they had to make episode one really bad. Yeah, it was like it's like a counterweight. Yeah, it's equivalent exchange, right? Yeah, the rules of alchemy, all all that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, season four really great, very strong ending to the season. Like, there's some really striking sequences. I think a lot of the issues with action sequence animation has kind of have kind of been solved there are some great looking fights in this season yeah they definitely they got they got the camera work down pretty well and the thing i appreciate about like especially the fight scenes in the back half of the show here with four and five they like um they play a little bit more to their strengths like Shira is not a particularly action heavy cartoon and and they kind of get to the point where they're like okay well we know this and it's it's more about the like uh like individual poses than it is about like having the action be like particularly like fast paced and and whatnot so so they 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 play to their strengths a little more in in the back half of the series and it it, it goes a long way yeah like uh i think the 
the fight uh, in Boys Night Out on the boat with the Rock remix is very good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, there's some great slapstick involving chucking horde dudes into space. Like, d- despite the kind of downer ending the season has, I think there are a lot of uh, very good moments of comedy sprinkled throughout. Oh yeah, for sure, tons of good comedy, and that's and that's the thing I think that that works really well as well. It's like so like this this again juxtapose the the rest of season four with the first episode where the comedy um doesn't feel it feels like two separate episodes right season four episode one it feels like there's the comedy half and then the serious half and they don't really mesh together they feel very like oil and water but uh but the rest of the season when comedy is injected it is like you know, it emulsifies, it all mixes together in a way that, that works. It, it makes, like, a complete whole. Yeah, compare the coronation where the the two things just cannot be congruent and, and just sort of rub up against each other in a very irritating way with Boys Night Out. A, a, an episode that is mostly, like, fun musical romps, but that also has some pretty weighty emotional scenes in uh, sprinkled into it, and it works very well. Yeah, they they managed to make a funny musical number with the TF2 achievement sound have like emotional depth and weight to it, which is like honestly pretty impressive and again, just such like leaps and bounds ahead of the game from where the coronation was sitting. But that's it on season 4. That is the last unspoilery thing we're probably going to get into. Everything else here, tread at your own risk as we crack open these emails. And I am, if I miss your email, I'm very sorry. Our email thing is very full, but I'm pretty sure this time I got everything that we haven't gotten to already. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure that we've got everything. Um, right before we recorded, I also like just took a second to run through the, the Gmail. I'm 99% sure everything is in here if it's not let us know but you know it's pretty sure we got all of it yeah so let's go ahead and get it started wasting no time here uh first off from Ramiao has a couple of questions hi i recently started uh listening to your podcast so skip my questions if they were answered in any episodes that i didn't hear yet so number one a seahawk i think you handed him the pass card too easily First of all, when you compared him to Han Solo, uh, you compared him to Han Solo. But Solo's cockiness comes from his competence, while no one calls Seahawk competent beside himself. Bo even ties better sea knots than this captain. Uh, but you also said he acts confident towards Mermista because he knows she likes him. But what I see is 100% uh, a fake it till you make it kind of guy. He is uh, the only character that gets away with being something he is not, which is kind of hilarious, except he reminds me of my boss, crying, uh, smiley. Oh, no. Um, I mean, the thing is, like, you're not wrong. He is, like, the... He is totally incompetent, and he is totally a fake it to you make it kind of guy. But we know that, like, uh, specifically with him and Mermista as well, like, there is previous history with both of them even before the first uh episode that he shows up in there's like some there there is like an established background between the two of them like they've extremely known each other for a long time and have you know presumably been like in an on again off again relationship for a while yeah like seahawk i feel like there was a period where seahawk was a more impressive kind of guy 
perhaps a few boats ago. <laughs> Maybe three or four boats ago. But like his time has his he has he has kind of sunken into the into the he's he's not as he's not at his best is what i'm trying to say here um because i mean the only reason he hangs around i guess is because he is the guy with the boat uh as as um he he moans about in uh that season two episode with the snow he's the guy he is the guy with the car he is he's the dude who has to shout a chauffeur everyone around when they can't get by uh, otherwise so which when you think about it also kind of what han solo is a little bit yeah he's kind of also the guy with the car uh cool well thank you uh all right so the next the next one is uh from miss pineapple face um on neutrality uh hello i'm loving the show and i just wanted to email in to ask what you all think of the show's repeated condemnations of neutrality uh, it was especially common during the first season of the show, in the Princess of the Week episodes, but it was there until the end. If a character refused to take a stance against the Horde, they would always either end up helping the villains or hurting the heroes. Uh, there are a ton of examples, uh, but a few notable ones include uh, Entrapta's pro-science attitude being exploited by the Horde, uh, Princess Prom being used as a setup for Glimmer's kidnapping, uh, Bo's dad's making him uncomfortable with expressing who he really is, uh, DT's entire role in the show. Uh, then, at the end of season four, uh, the show is able to use this association between neutrality and uh, villainy to further drive home that Glimmer is at the bottom of her arc. The only time where neutrality helps the good guys is when DT betrays the Horde on Glimmer's behalf. It unquestionably paints her actions in a negative light. Even if her plan would have worked, the show has built up a foundation of themes that would make it clear that Glimmer is not in the right. Anyways, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Keep up the great work with the show. Well, thank you. Um, so... I do think they're onto something here. Um, there is a, there are a lot of moments where, you know, they, they are basically forced, you have to pick a side. There's no, like, sitting this one out. This affects everyone on Etheria, and you can't just, like sort of not do anything yeah yeah no the show definitely uh takes like a fairly hardline stance on on neutrality in the face of like the the big fascist colonialist empire like they 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 do take a pretty hard stance on that and they also like another great example is like uh, angela right you know she's not necessarily neutral but she is an inactive ruler she's like she she would rather keep the status quo than push for any genuine gains and that's also condemned uh, pretty harshly so yeah no i would definitely agree i think that like the show um as a stance typically tries to go more in a proactive uh and and offensive direction with with how like it, it sees resolving the issue of the horde or whatever but interestingly and i think this is this is uh, a big part of season four is that uh they also look at the the other side of that same coin where it's like yes you need to be proactive and you need to not be a, a neutral party who is allowing this stuff to happen but also the justifications that you make along the way to get there can lead you down really negative paths and that's kind of where glimmer's at uh in in her arc of season four is she's like she's become proactive in a way that is destructive 
rather than constructive. Yeah, and very similarly, Catra is also falling into that same trap. Uh, it's interesting that they bring Double Trouble up in this sort of uh, theme about condemning neutrality. Because, yeah, Double Trouble is like a mercenary who will work for whoever pays them the most. Like, they have no compunctions about who they work for as long as they're getting paid or as long as they're on the winning side. Like... If they didn't think Glimmer had the upper hand at the end of season four, I don't think they would have agreed to that deal. Exactly, exactly. That's another thing, too, is DT is also, like, another thing the show uses as uh, as exemplary of, like, a way in which neutrality can become profiteering, you know? You can, you can take a stance of uh you can take you can take a centrist stance into a profiteering direction and and dt is kind of the person who does that so there's there's a lot of ways in which the show tries to talk about this kind of thing like we've said before that shira is not a war story it's a story wherein war is a plot and framing device um but the ways in which it uses that framing device uh, are not always just focused on individual characters but also sometimes these more broader social things like you know neutrality uh in the face of genuine oppression and then also like how you can be a destructive rather than constructive force uh, when trying to to be proactive towards it. You know, it's 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 pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And Entrapta as well as as this uh, person says, being manipulated into serving the horde because of her like data driven mindset, where she doesn't really think or consider the consequences of her actions. Only that. She is in a place that allows her to make advancements in technology. Exactly, exactly. And and that one's interesting, too, because, like, Entrapta was exploited by the Horde. You know, she she was lied to to believe that her, her friends had abandoned her and that, uh, you know, her talents would be much better suited to this more technologically advanced organization. And she was, in fact, like a victim of exploitation. But, you know, it's it's also important, you know, to bear in mind that despite the fact that she's a victim of exploitation, she also, like, is a good example of, like, again, that sort of neutrality position where she was, like, you know, she sees everything that the Horde is doing and, like, is actively contributing to it. Um, but because of her stance that the only thing that matters uh, is the science and that, you know, what her science is used for doesn't really matter to her. Um, that's like, that's another aspect that that is being condemned, right? Like that's that's another thing that the show is like going out of its way to to uh, let you know is is wrong to do. So yeah, these these are all pretty good examples, I think. And, and Bo's dads too, right? Bo's dads too, they take the academic position. They're like, we're, we're academics, we're here to just do our jobs, we're not, we, we don't want to uh, involve ourselves in this big conflict, and then they also have that sort of parental role where they're like, well, we don't want to endanger our kids, we don't want to put ourselves at risk, 
uh, or or our families. And again, this is this is like another layer to it, right? Where it's it's not like they're they're not like strictly condemned, I don't think, but they are shown that their decision isn't right and that it is a selfish position to have taken and i don't know it's the the show i think does like a pretty reasonable job at getting these kind of ideas across to the audience i agree so let's move on to the third one here uh from jennifer uh talking about glimmer and shadow weaver uh in season four yes one thing i grapple with is the way that they handled the storyline of glimmer's character working with shadow weaver in, in the Shadows of Mysticor, Glimmer throws through the, goes through the character arc of uh, accepting Adora's PTSD and realizing the damage Shadow Weaver has done. She is then nearly murdered by Shadow Weaver and sees Shadow Weaver almost murder Katra. In Season 2, she tells Shadow Weaver not to hurt Adora. When Glimmer acknowledges Adora's PTSD and then confronts Shadow Weaver when she is in prison, it seems like she has completely de- deemed Shadow Weaver irredeemable due to the manipulation abuse Adora has faced. She is aware of Shadow Weaver's character. Uh, the Glimmer Shadow Weaver storyline is fascinating, but I feel something was missing specifically on Adora's side. I feel like they should have added a moment uh, in, during season four of Adora expressing her upset feelings because her friend is working with her abusive mother figure. In the Shadows of Mysticor is one of the best episodes of the entire series because it handles Adora's PTSD, but her PTSD is not brought up again as much as I wish it would be in relation to one of her best friends interacting with Shadow Weaver. What are your thoughts? Thanks. This is a tough one. Yeah, so so this is this is an interesting to- topic uh, because um, my thoughts on it are pretty similar. I think that... So Adora's, like, mental scape... And we we've talked about it so many times, but but the the aspects I think that are fairly core to understanding her character and who she is are in fact like you know the the big the big three you know you have the atlas complex you have the romantic repression and then you have the uh the the trauma induced uh, ptsd and those three things are kind of the foundational pillars of why she behaves the way she does and what has shaped her into the person that she is in the show but not all of those pillars are given the same degree of attention and the one that is not given nearly as much as the rest of them is in fact the the trauma induced ptsd they it's and i don't necessarily think this is like a a critical flaw i think the show does address it um a reasonable amount but uh in season four there is a little bit of of that acknowledgement that that does go a little bit missing it's it's not like completely unspoken but it's subtle you know adora's like consistently very much bothered by and upset at the fact that glimmer is around shadow weaver and she's often like commenting on that and having these snide remarks and things about shadow weaver's trustworthiness and and other things like that but you know there's no like confrontation you know there's no scene where where adora you know walks up to to glimmer and says you know, hey, what the fuck? Like, that's, that doesn't really happen. The closest we get is probably the brooding Batman scene in Glimmer's bedroom uh, during the, uh, 
uh, was that that was during um, Mer Mysteries, right? Yeah, Mer Mysteries with the storm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was during Mer Mysteries. So, so that seems like the closest we get, and it's not quite there. Um, at the same time, though, I don't necessarily think it was out of character either. You know, Adora's not the kind of person who I think is going to like go into that too deeply especially not like when everything else is going on at the same time uh it's tricky it's tricky i think that i think the show i think season four really could have benefited from having like a confrontation like that where that kind of comes to the surface and uh if anything i think like a scene i might have injected that into actually is um in boys night like i think that having glimmer be like like glimmer does the line about like basically she she blames her for her mother's death and, and stuff like that and she does that that whole spiel i think that that caliber of moment would have been like a great time to to bring up the shadow weaver thing and you know it, it's 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 a show they have they only have so much time to dedicate to stuff so it's understandable that they decided to go with like other aspects of of these relationships uh to kind of to kind of highlight even because you know the ptsd thing has been established it just hasn't been like uh used that much in season four but but yeah no i think i think it definitely would have been nice to see more of that this stuff kind of comes back up in season five towards the uh, the end of the season when, with Catra and Adora, but never really with Adora and Glimmer. It's never really remarked upon again. And it's you're right. It's just that they literally didn't have the time. There are 13 episodes in this season. They're all very dense. Maybe with two more, you could have gotten a scene like that. You could have gotten some more exploration, but structure is important. Structure is important. I, I, I think that definitely, definitely we could have gotten more with this. And I think that had they been given like a second pass, you know, like a, like a second shot at it, I definitely think that a scene like this would have been in there. And I, I bet you, in fact, that on the cutting room floor is a scene like this. I, I couldn't I couldn't tell you for sure, but I I'd be willing to hazard a guess that there was a there was a pass at the script for Boys Night that included something like this. Yeah, maybe they thought it was too much. Maybe they thought, like, someone looked at it and said, this is a bit, maybe it ended up way too, like, mean for where they were. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this other thing, too, is, like, this show pulls at a lot of strings of some really heavy and really real-world parallel material. And, like, at the end of the day, this is, like, a DVY-14 show. So they can't necessarily get too heavy-handed with it most of the time so i could see also like the the emotional caliber of a scene like that pushing it to a point that maybe somebody decided to, to pull back a little bit so well yeah i i think i think largely my opinion is like i definitely agree and i think that it would have been it, it does feel like that's missing like that is a component that i think if was added, I think would strengthen the show. Absolutely. Uh, you want to take these other questions from Jennifer here? Absolutely. So uh, Jennifer sent us a couple more. Um, 
First one, how disappointed were Katra and Adora during season four every time they went into a battle and didn't see each other? Uh, I'm reminded of Roll With It when Adora found Scorpy at the pass instead of Katra. Uh, probably... See, in season four, I don't know that they'd be that disappointed. I feel like in season four, uh, Adora, at any rate, is very much still in, like, its on-site mode. Catra, I think, Catra, I think maybe, maybe would be, like, a little bit like, oh, when's Adora gonna show up? But, like, yeah, Adora, Adora's not a Catra fan in season four. Yeah, their relationship, uh, even as rivals, is a bit strained in season four. I'm not sure they would be too excited to to see one another. Like they they have that only only one conversation. Uh, the other one is double trouble, of course, and that one conversation they have, mm, it's pretty chilly. Uh, oh yeah, cut cut the tension in that one uh, with a knife. Yeah, Dora's not here for any of Catra's like usual stuff she's not here for the bants she's not here for the flirtation she's just here to fight oh yeah no no banter uh no banter in season four um question two uh did catra's new sleeves uh have any importance past the fact that it is on the arm that became corrupted in the portal episode half of her other arm is also covered um well first of all uh, it's important that the other arm is uncovered partially uh so you can see how buff she got in season four. Oh yeah that's a critical component i mean how how else how else would you design it but um yeah I, as far as like thematic elements are concerned i don't know that i can think of any thematic reason that there's a half sleeve on the other arm i think that just might be a like a design decision um the the thematic element of the portal arm being like that is of course the fact that it is the portal arm but like um you know remember the portal arm is like that because that's the that's the arm that was hanging off the cliff right that's that's the arm she lets go from to fall into into the like uh, singularity and become like a portal creature you know that's it's it's the it's the arm she used to make uh, that decision is kind of the the important sort of visual through line. Yeah. Uh, also, asymmetry just looks cool. It's like a cool design. It also, just looks good. Yeah. Like I, I think it's just it looks good, and that's why they did it. Uh, if you're gonna cover one arm, uh, let's see what else we got here. So, we've got some questions from sean love your recent podcasts really going in depth here are a couple of questions in an interview on another podcast it came up uh, about double trouble with some of the writers of the episode uh, said there was a real flutterina and pika blue uh they stated yes D- double trouble was imitating real people uh they said the writer staff headcanon is that pika blue was living in a cave somewhere as a hermit who then comes out and says what i've been running a cabaret um concerning flutterina though they said the cast went to a dark place what are y'all's thoughts huh a dark place that's interesting shoved down a canyon shoved down a canyon um i don't know okay so that's 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 really interesting i'd actually be really interested to find out what that interview is i figured there was a real peekaboo because there's that easter egg in uh the princess prom episode yeah yeah and, and because peak blue is like a known factor even before they get to that party yeah everyone was pretty much aware that peekaboo existed 
Flutterina is one that it seems like an odd one. No one else at the village really seems to acknowledge her very much. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's... Shoved down a canyon. Shoved down a canyon. She's at the bottom of a well. Someone needs to get Lassie out here. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it's interesting. I, w- I would actually love to to find that interview because I'd be interested to know if they, like, say anything more on, like, what a dark place means because... I don't know, because that could have implications, right? Like, what it like, what does a dark place mean? Is this like, did did DT like do some stuff, or did 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 they like, I don't know, like there was like a missing child, and they were like, okay, that's that's I'll be the the missing child, and then come back and I'll be like, you know, that could be it. That's the end. You know, that I have my perfect my perfect alibi, just slot right in something like that. I don't know. It's that that'd be interesting. That could be it. I I don't think Double Trouble murdered a child. They aren't that <laughs> probably quite not. That, aren't quite that dark. No. But impersonating a missing child is definitely well within the realm of uh, of operations. Let's see. Here's another one. Uh, what mental disorders do you believe Catra suffers from? My headcanon is that she suffers from C PTSD, Shadow Weaver and the Horde, and abandonment issues will often go together. Uh, I don't see her as having BPD, as some have said, but for sure has depression and at least is at least passively suicidal. All right. Um, abandonment issues is correct. Abandonment issues is correct. Um, I do, I do want to like take a, a little bit of an opportunity here to just like to like clarify a couple of things. Um, and that's just from from the perspective of like trying to talk about um like the characters and and their mental health and like various things that the show kind of textually tries to to tackle as as themes um th- this is stuff that that we like to get into because it's it's important stuff to talk about it's it's very core and critical uh to the characters um, it's very important to try and acknowledge like what kind of general like symptoms uh, and, and and various things that the characters are exhibiting because I think those are things that like they're worth talking about and because they're definitely like it, this is an intended read I think. Um, that being said, I think that there's uh, there is a line between trying to acknowledge the various like mental health struggles that the show tries to talk about um and then and and you know trying to discuss that in an analytical way i think there's a difference between that and then like actively trying to like diagnose uh like the fictional characters with like like dsm style diagnoses like, I don't feel personally, like, super confident in my ability to do that. I don't I don't really want to touch that so much. You know what I mean? Yeah. Listen, if you share one of those mental disorders and you want to headcanon characters having that, that's fine. That's good. Go right ahead. But diagnosing them with all that kind of stuff, it gets into odd territory. It does. It does. And, like... I'm like I'm comfortable talking about a lot of the stuff um, that I do with like Katra and Adora because a lot of the things I'm talking about are things I also have to deal with on a daily basis and this is the kind of stuff that's like I can speak from a lot of experience with and I can 
um, give insight on. But uh, when it comes to like trying to like, I feel there's a difference between trying to 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 do that on my end, and then also uh, between that and like. I don't know, trying to like armchair therapist and figure out like, you know, if Katra has BPD or something like that. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. These are not real people. They are characters meant to reflect, uh, experiences and, and emotional truths about the world. Um, like it, 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 I'm not entirely sure how constructive it is to get into such specifics. Exactly. Exactly. Um, onto this third one here. Yes. Do you think Shira slash Adora was trying to kill Katra or just scare the hell out of her? The look on Katra's face really showed that she thought Adora was trying to hurt her. Do you think Katra was trying to kill Shira or just get rid of her? Um, it's a good question. Um, I do not know. It's it's hard to tell. So, um, I think when there's 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 multiple fights that they have where it looks like people are going for kill shots, right? Um, obviously, there's the snow episode where Adora's going berserker mode, but as far as, like, uh, some of the, the like, the Catra and Adora fight in Season 4 is concerned, the one at the, um, the, like, prison compound, it's, I feel like that is a point where Adora isn't necessarily trying to kill Catra, but she isn't, she's not playing with kid gloves either like she's not she's not going through for the jugular but she she isn't trying to to pull a punch she's going to maim at the very least yeah like we see in the in the huntara episode of season four that she does put double trouble masquerading as catra into the like the cage so she's not like going for kill shots all the time but she's certainly not like fight she's not holding back at all she's not gonna like stay her hand just for catra's sake exactly certainly not anymore not post portal um as far as catra trying to like kill shira versus just take her out of the fight um i think catra where she's at especially like post portal she's like she's not try I don't think she's ever trying to kill Adora so much as she's just trying to put her in a totally weak and helpless state. Like, she wants to destroy Adora. She doesn't necessarily just want to kill her. She's had a lot of opportunities to just kill her uh, that she hasn't taken, you know? Um, remember back in the the Crimson Waste episodes? She had a great opportunity to just take Adora out. Gone. Just like that. Her problems solved. She doesn't do it. She puts her, chains her up in a back room, and she uses the time to gloat and to taunt, right? Even in the portal reality, even when she has, like, sort of been subsumed by the portal and she is, like, you know, she's got, like, portal buffs or whatever, she doesn't kill adora she pushes her around she stops her from being able to do anything but she's not like killing her she's just pinning her down she's knocking her to the ground she's standing above her and gloating and taunting and and just toying with her and i think that's really her her goal most of the show is she's just trying to make adora as miserable as she feels like adora made her yeah, that's about right. In season four, she's she's 
trying to drag everyone down with her, as we've said before. Exactly, exactly. It's more of a revenge thing for her than it is like an outright like murder thing. All right, next one here. Uh, a lot of people have picked up on a certain vibe of Kiss Me, Kill Me between Catra and Glimmer, especially from Glimmer's side that you pointed out in the first season. Do you think Catra reciprocated slash felt the same? Listen, you're not going to get an unbiased answer here. No, but listen, I mean, here's the thing. Yes. Here's the thing. You, you've, you've all seen Corridors. You've all seen it. I'm looking at each and every one of you. You've all seen Corridors. Listen, if you're if you're in a big secret base in the woods and your greatest enemy is shooting a bunch of death beams at you and is like standing over you on a burning catwalk kind of like straddling you a little bit with like a big laser pointed at your face there's some sexual tension involved i think that's just how it goes it's it's thicker than the smoke in that scene like come on you're at if you're if you're asking if you're looking for someone who's who's gonna who's gonna really look at all sides and 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 take a take a real middle of the road approach you've come to the wrong podcast hosts oh yeah no there's i think i think catcher absolutely reciprocated those those sort of uh those sort of heavy like jennifer's body style like <laughs> you, you know like oh yeah you're <laughs> this is really hot, but also I'm trying to kill you kind of situations. Exactly. Hear more about that in our upcoming Watchtower, uh, which is all glitter themed, so I'm sure we'll be talking plenty about that. Oh, yeah. So, uh, more from this block of questions from Sean. Did you notice during Catra's nightmare, Scorpia isn't in the background when Catra looked shocked from tasing Entrapta? Maybe because she didn't know she was behind her in real life. Huh. I don't think I've noticed that before, no. No. Uh, also, just just reminding us of the incredibly good line uh, from Flutterina, there's a me cake. Uh, pretty good. Thank you, Adora. Uh, yeah, that's... Uh, Adora, the, the delivery on there's a me cake is one of my favorite in that episode. <laughs> she, just like, she just interrupts herself to scream it. Um, it's great. Alright, let's see what else we got here. Uh... <laughs> also the hug adora gets from that super buff lady uh it looks like between her blush uh, to that lady and huntara adora has a type oh yeah she does do you think if catcher had seen adora's reaction she would have gotten jealous yes oh yeah yeah like catcher would catcher would extremely get jealous but like I, hey listen she's been working out she's season four <laughs> she's a little buffer she's like she's she's still she's still uh quite quite spry but like i don't know if she who knows what happens after the show maybe maybe catcher hits the gym with scorpia for a while and uh and starts bench pressing her girlfriend who's to say in Shira form, really, really getting those, uh, getting those reps in. Mm, and someone out there's drawn that, you know. Uh huh. Um, the rebels captured one of our bots and retrofitted it with a surge device. Who the heck on the rebel side has those skills, Bo? Yes. Oh yeah, Bo could totally do that. No question. Bo is like, like I, I think sometimes the show even like undersells it a little bit, but Bo is every bit as capable as Entrapta is at uh, at tech stuff, especially like after like the middle of season four. Like he he's really good at his job. 
He's the tech master. He's not just the guy with the bow and arrows. He knows how to get stuff working. He helped rebuild that. He he rebuilt the spaceship the first time. Yeah. Sure, Entrapta is the one who got it spaceworthy, but he got it running again. Yeah, right? Like, Entrapta, Entrapta really just, like, fixed up the last little bits, but, uh, but Bo's the one who got that thing airborne, which is not a simple task. Um, and then finally here, this is just kind of a, a block of questions about the, the Flood Arena episode. Um, Catra mentions to Adora, they threw you a party, you must feel so special. Do you think there's envy there because uh, of the one party that was thrown for her? Um, uh, which, which party? Actually, yeah, I'm trying to, what, when, when did, when did Catra get a party thrown for her? Did Catra get a party thrown for her? Um, during Portal, right, there's the fake party. Oh, maybe that's what they're talking about. Maybe it is the the fake portal party that everyone still remembers. That everyone still remembers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, no, I think I think there's probably some envy there, right? I think like especially if Katra's like entire um life she's had one like party thrown for her and it turns out it was like this <laughs> entirely fake fabricated by a portal reality i feel like she's gonna be a little bit jealous but they, that party was also for adora i think the one with the cake oh was it the the bar the the yeah that was for adora getting uh force captain i believe when was the party for catra when was there a party for catra i mean the, the she is all envious of adora's like lot as a hero and the adoration she receives i'm sure because the because catra never gets anything other than just like reprimands and verbal abuse from everyone she tries so hard to impress oh yeah like i i think like whether <laughs> whenever that party is that uh that we can't remember for some reason like completely irrespective of that i think definitely there's a lot of jealousy involved just between like her not getting basically any praise or acknowledgement of her hard work or anything from anybody (laughs) she's she's like every every single one of these like acidic like bile insults that she spits out they're so (laughs) they're always so like um it's so full of jealousy all the time like Catra wears her her emotions right on her sleeve, uh, and uh, and that's that's definitely one case of that. Yeah. Uh, so that's all for the Flood Arena question block here. How about you take the next one from Finn? Absolutely. So uh, Finn here is talking about Light Hope leaving clues. So they say, "Hi, Nero and Jane. I just found y'all's podcast and have been rewatching Shira." Uh, while rewatching the episode Light Hope, I noticed something I hadn't before. When she glitches, Light Hope says, Heart, destroying us, uh, garbled, possibly help us, Etheria. So beyond the balancing the planet thing, we can even see the crew seeding in bits about the heart of Etheria and Light Hope having programming that overrides her will slash personality. Um, I left a clip attached. I'm not caught up with your pod, so I don't know if someone has pointed this out in your correspondence segment before. Um, and I know this is pretty far behind where you are in the show, but I just thought y'all might find it interesting. Cheers. Uh, thank you very much. Do you, did you look at the, the clip? Let's, I have not, let me, let me try to find it. Here, link me that, link me that clip real quick. I'm gonna just take a look at it. She does say something. The horde, the horde is hurting us, balance Etheria, is what she says. Yes. 
I'm not sure I hear heart or just... She says the horde is destroying us, balance Etheria. The horde is hurting us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this is this is her saying uh, the horde is hurting us, uh, balance Etheria, is what that sounds like to my ear. Um, so I don't necessarily think that the heart of Etheria is getting mentioned. Quite yet. Yet. Um, yeah. Yeah. She does. She does mention balancing the planet, which I think she probably mentions, you know, elsewhere in that episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. She's. I mean, that's like the. That's like the common. That's the through line for her, right? Is always balance the planet. Balance the planet. She doesn't explain what it means. Yep. Because you know, if she did, it would um, to not go over. She well. wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> she wouldn't. She wouldn't want to. Uh, she already saw what happened once. Yeah. All right. Um. So we got another set of questions here from sean about a particular episode this time it is about pulse uh, otherwise known as the one where glimmer and catcher try to kill each other in a burning base uh for like five minutes yes the the extremely tense episode in more ways than one mm-hmm. uh so to the questions i really like this episode not just for the amazing fight between glimmer and catcher but also uh the natasa and spinnerella uh stuff the shadow weaver stuff and the start of the glimmer and adora fracture so first one, would this be the start of Glimmer and Catra mirroring each other's arcs, or were there hints before this episode? Um, I think there were definitely hints before this episode. If anything, um, I would say that like the the mirroring starts at Coronation. Like Coronation is like the definitive beginning to that, where you suddenly have the two opposing rulers kind of facing off against each other um like that's the like that's the thing is that's when that mirror is established but as far as like the um when they start really interacting with each other it's definitely before pulse it's probably um what would you say uh i mean coronation is correct but like that the pulse is their first direct confrontation and so that's kind of where they start getting set against each other directly. Like other, you know, coronation is just parallels. Pulse is is the two characters directly interacting. Exactly, exactly. It's like these these two parallel characters colliding um, for the first time in a while. It's uh, that's that's sort of how that is. Um, uh, the next one is uh, Shadow Weaver is super creepy, but uh, quote. You're trying to be your mother, overseeing things from afar, but you are not her. You must decide what kind of queen you will be. Uh, she's manipulative as hell, but doesn't a lot of her advice make sense throughout the series? Uh, grooming. And yes, that is, you, you hit the nail on the head. It is, in fact, grooming. Yeah, the thing I like about Shadow Weaver's character that makes her so interesting is that she isn't, you know, wrong. She isn't telling people falsehoods for the most part. Like, her advice isn't just stuff that will get you killed or mess you up. The reason she's so dangerous and so manipulative is that she is right, that she is smart, and that she will tell you the things you want to want to hear, but also the things that will steer you in the direction she wants you to go. Exactly. Like, yes, correctly... Glimmer is trying to be her mother, and she should be more proactive. She should make a decision as to what kind of ruler she's going to be and not simply follow in her mother's footsteps. That's true. However, 
Shadowweaver isn't making this advice in a vacuum. She's saying this while pushing her in a direction that makes her more malleable to her own desires. You know, Shadowweaver's ultimate goal with, you know, defecting, quote-unquote, to the to Bright Moon isn't to make the rebellion win. She doesn't care about that. And if anything, she still probably harbors quite a heavy grudge against Mysticor. Um the only reason she's doing this is because she wants to see Hordak burn. And how is she going to make that happen? Well, she needs to make sure the queen of Bright Moon, the leader of the alliance, is going to be proactive and she's going to be a queen that is much more warlike and and focused on victory. And that's that's how she's going to achieve that goal. Because the things that Shadow Weaver wants to do to achieve that goal, the the levels uh, that she's willing to go to to make that happen, are the kind of things that you can only convince someone to do if either A, they are evil, or B, they feel backed into a wall and like it's their only option to go for. So yeah, she's definitely grooming glimmer and trying to give her it's it's all about like half truths right it's like you're you are manipulating someone by using what is true to push them through rhetoric into the direction you want them to go exactly uh next one here staying on the shadow weaver train shadow weaver quote you don't need to think like catra shadow weaver is not fond of catra do you think that Glimmer does start thinking a lot like Catra this season with her arc appearing to mirror Catras? They both appear pretty ruthless and uh, want to get their way. Plus, they keep shutting people out. Yeah, so Shadow Weaver and Catra. This is, uh, they've got an interesting dynamic. Especially on Shadow Weaver's side, actually. Because the thing is, Shadow Weaver isn't lying when she says in season five, and I think she says it before this too, uh, when she says that she cares very deeply about Katra, that she always saw herself in Katra and her own failures and felt like she needed to be extra hard on her because of it. I don't think she's telling a lie. I think that's probably very accurate. Um, so when she's so testy and touchy about Katra being mentioned, I think that's a big part of it. I think she feels that Katra is a failure and she doesn't want to be reminded of that because she feels like the ways that Catcher has failed are the same ways that she failed. She doesn't like being reminded of the ways that she's been brought low. She's the kind of person who likes to ride high on the wave of, of superiority. And when she's brought low, she is not in a good... She, she doesn't like that. So so yeah, she doesn't like to be reminded of Catra. And uh, I think... Uh, as far as the second portion is as, uh, that is concerned, I think definitely Glimmer does start to think more like Catra. Yeah, um, and the the uh, the next one here is Double Trouble the most relaxed (parentheses least amount of anxiety) among all of the main characters. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Double tr- Double Trouble's just vibing. Just vibing. They're just like they're just hanging out. They're just out, they're just out here having a good time. Yeah. It, like. I think the most worried they ever get is the first time they meet Hordak. Yeah. After that, it's, it's basically just all casual. Oh, yeah. The, even when dealing with the, the, the endless Hordak clones of the Galactic Horde, they don't seem like... The reason they didn't stick around is because they were just bored. 
Like mm-hmm. no one, no one was couldn't get a reaction out of anyone. Like Double Trouble is is genuinely there for a laugh, mate. That's all it is. All right. Um, and the last one here, very very in depth question, critical question. Nira and Jane, vegetable platters, yay or nay? Yay, but only, and this is important, only for those baby carrots. Baby carrots are very good. So I'm thinking there are a few kinds of vegetable platters. Um, you know, there's always the, the, the classic, the ranch, surrounded by the baby carrots, the celery. Sometimes there's like bell peppers or whatever. Mm-hmm. Those are all right. Baby carrots, obviously the winner there. I can eat some celery. That's fine. Bell peppers too. So like a hummus vegetable platter, I think you got to be more specific oh. about what you put. The baby carrots can still stay there. Hummus vegetable platters are the best thing. Yes. Like honestly, like like a good a good hummus. You got the baby carrots. Uh, you got your celery. You got. Um, I can even tolerate, and I hate cucumber. I can tolerate cucumber if I'm dipping it in some hummus. Uh, I mean, like hummus is just like the perfect dip. It's like amazing. Hummus is great. I love hummus. Love me a good hummus. Uh, I don't want hummus now. Shit. God, right? I just I'm like thinking about it now. It's been like a while. I need to get some hummus. Hummus. Well, while I'm over here craving hummus, how about you take this question from Charisma? Yes. So Charisma says, Hi, I've been binge listening to the podcast for a while now. Still two episodes behind, but not going to worry about that right now. Um, Either way, I've had a sit of questions building up in my head, and I need to send them all before I forget them. So first, there are a couple of things in the episode Flowers for She-Ra that will not stop plaguing me. First of which... How much do you think Adora internalized the people being disappointed at seeing She-Ra? Because our girl had to have internalized that, right? And I know she says this line before this happens, oh. uh, but I think it really goes with Adora's arc when she says, quote, people like me better as She-Ra anyways. Yeah, I, I kind of forgot about that aspect of flowers for She-Ra. It certainly couldn't have helped things. No... I don't know how much it weighs on her, but it certainly kind of colors a few things going forward, uh, especially the very beginning of season five when she has no powers. Oh, yeah, especially with stuff like that, right? And I think, like, another part of it is, is yeah, like, she's, she's going to internalize some of this, and that's, like, how does that manifest? Well, as we talk about basically every episode, she internalizes it as, like, you know, she is here to be she-ra she's here to be the hero that has that has been the fate that has been thrust upon her and is the fate she has to meet as uh as it comes down to it so you know that just sort of reinforces that perception of herself as like i am here to fulfill my role as a instrument of of the people and not necessarily here to just be a person yeah uh second one Earlier on in the podcast, you speculated what Shadow Weaver's favorite Shakespeare play would be, and I just needed to ask, what do you think everyone else's favorite plays would be? I have an hypothesis on Bo, which is that his would either be Much Ado About Nothing or A Midsummer's Night Dream, because they're both comedies, and I think that'd be up his alley. Uh, this is this is a dread question for me. See, okay, so here's... I know a little bit about Shakespeare. Yeah, because here, here's the thing, here's the thing. I was a theater kid i was not an actor i was a techie i built the sets and i did the lighting so i'm not like an especially like 
play savvy individual here but uh but you know if if, if you if you've if you've got the shakespearean background i'll i'm happy to let you take this one yeah formally trained um you know several productions under my belt i certainly didn't just read hamlet in high school and, and romeo <laughs> and juliet um boy uh thinking of all of the shakespeare plays that i know what they're about um i think much ado about nothing fits pretty well for Bo. uh that's basically just a romantic comedy um let's see hordak hordak likes coriolanus um that's the one about like a soldier like a roman soldier yeah that tracks uh I think it's, I think I said some did I, did I say Shadow Weaver is a big fan of the Tempest in in that first one? Cause I one think so. Magic. That sounds about right. Except that's the one where the end magic is bad. So I don't know if, if Shadow Weaver would actually like that one. Oh boy, what else do I know? Um, well, whose favorite is Hamlet? That's a good one. Whose favorite is Hamlet? Oh, who likes sad boy stuff? Uh, I think Mermista's favorite is Hamlet. It is kind of a mystery. It is a little bit of a mystery. Um. I don't think Perfuma Frosta definitely doesn't like any Shakespeare plays. Let's be real here. <laughs> uh, I can't really see Perfuma. Perfuma might go for a Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, I could, I could see that. I could see that. Oh, fun! Hey, you want to know a really funny thing about me? Sure. So my exposure to a Midsummer Night's Dream—the only time I've ever seen it—was a production by my high school's theater company after I graduated because my sister went to the same high school of a midsummer night's dream but the catch was it was jersey shore good god it was a nightmare that wow i i'm just gonna ask you to move to the next question while i grapple (laughs) with that thought Um, (laughs) okay uh third question Catra's mask in season five she loses this mask and in adora's new shira form uh, she has this mask, and it's basically known that the mask serves as uh, Catra having this thin veil of protection over herself. Uh, is this symbolizing Adora being a new protector of Catra's heart, if you will? Um, that's that's an interesting read. That's that's not the read I took away from it, but that's an interesting read to take. Yeah, it's like it, it, are those reflections of her friends representative of Adora? Uh, taking it upon herself to shoulder all of their burdens to fight for all of them i think that's the read that i had yeah yeah that's that's interesting that's really interesting i see the read the read i took was more like she has sort of integrated um her sense of self and and her and her friends and all of that into shira she has she has integrated herself and her life as part of what Shira is and and less that Shira is like this separate entity and is really an extension of herself um and her family you know I I think that's sort of the read that I took from the integration of the the various pieces of of her friend's like uh outfits uh, motifs but I can also super see that as like uh, a symbol like like symbolically um taking on a a sort of guardianship role over 
uh, over the the lives of of her family. I, I think that's an interesting read on that. Yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk more about that when we get to that first transformation sequence in season five. Oh yes, don't worry about that. We'll we'll have plenty to say about that. Question number four: A thing about Catradora and their cliffs. We see them in cliffs a lot in this show. Catra herself falls off of these a number of times, but in Save the Cat, which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, is, I think, the last episode with cliff imagery. Not true. Heart part two. Heart part two, but we'll get there. Adora jumps off of the cliff after her. I don't know if there's something to say about the symbolicness or, or something like that, but I just don't have the words for it, so I'm leaving this thought with you. Yes. Oh, yes. In Save the Cat, Catra falls off of a cliff. Um, it, it, she uh, she stumbles back, controlled by Horde Prime, and uh, this is directly after she she makes Adora promise to take her home. Promises. That's another big one. And Catra falls, and Adora, without a moments of hesitation, just jumps after her. Exactly. I mean, here's here's the thing about cliffs. Um, what do the cliffs symbolize? Why are cliffs such an important piece of imagery for their relationship? Um, so to break it down, what happens every single time that the cliffs are there? You know, one of them is being thrown off of a cliff. And the other one is above. And oftentimes the situation is that one of them is trying to either save the other or get rid of the other. This is this is the common thing. It is cliffs are a very literal visual divide between the two of them. And you can see this often in how it's deployed. Um, in a in a visual framing context right when the cliff scenes happen so often the screen is split in half you know uh, half of the screen is the cliffhanger and half of the screen is the person above the cliff and it's it's a very clear way to delineate between the two of them it's the the cliffs are always symbolic of a divide between the two of them one of them is falling one of them stays behind and there the gap between the two of them grows in some way each time yeah in fact in in this specific instance with the with the save the cat cliff right this is them about to bridge that divide and then it is taken away catcher is unceremoniously dumped off the side of a cliff to split them apart again yeah, and you know, all of let's let's real quick run down all the cliffs. Cliff supercut. Let's go. First cliff, promise. Mhm. No, actually first cliff, princess prom. That's right, yeah. So, they're fighting, uh Catra nearly goes over the cliff, and Adora catches her and pulls her uh close um in a very, you know, heterosexual best friend kind of way. Naturally, naturally. And then Adora uh, then the, Catra falls off of the cliff and is hanging on and makes the decision to drop herself, knowing that uh, Scorpia and the ship are there to catch her. So, like, that is her deciding to sort of safely disengage from that gap, right? Mm. Like, she knows exactly where she's going to fall and what sh- what's going to happen. Second cliff, promise. This time it's Adora hanging over the cliff. Catra is the one standing above it. 
she's got the sword and she is going to uh she she has gone she has come to the conclusion that adora is the thing holding her back and she doesn't need her anymore and so she tosses the sword into the abyss and leaves adora hanging there third cliff portal episode uh katra hanging over the cliff with uh with one arm the the void spread out below her adora pleading with her to uh to to come back to grab her hand katra knowingly un uh let's go of the cliff knowing that there's nothing to catch her fall knowing that she will simply fall into nothingness uh chooses to let go out of spite exactly exactly she she makes the active decision to widen that gap herself to to cut this off at uh, at the shoulder and you know coincidentally what happens to uh, everything below the shoulder mm-hmm. and finally we have the save the cat cliff where both of them go over the cliff together exactly exactly they catcher is thrown off the cliff to to widen that gap between them but adora chases after and tries to to save her um, and then, of course, and then we get the last cliff scene. We can't talk about that no, one. No, we don't. We can't talk about we it. We can't talk about it. We That one's... You, you can't talk about that one. Um, let's see here. Uh, you want to take this last one? Yes, indeed. So, uh, number five. I would also like to throw my own theories uh, into the ring about the thought of when Adora figured out when she was in love with Catra, since you've given your own, but I don't quite agree. Um, I think... It was either when she's off to the heart and she thinks she hears Katra call out to her and get that nice little uh, montage scene, or it possibly could have been in Save the Cat uh, when Katra says uh, she doesn't matter and Adora says you matter to me. There was true love embedded in that line, but I'm not as confident in whether she understood that it was love at that point. Uh, But I think on some level that she possibly did. Okay, so... I think there is a difference between the conscious acknowledgement of where she's at versus the unconscious understanding of where she's at. Like I said earlier, three pillars of Adora's character. Uh, one of those pillars is, in fact, her her lack of understanding of her love for Katra. Like, the, the fact that this is always there, but... She simply does not have the tools to understand and engage with it. So you matter to me, which, by the way, good God, what a line! Oh, we mm, save the cat. Uh, I, save the cat is in our near future, it's everybody. Pretty close. So. It's pretty God. close. Yeah, yeah, that line's so good. Um, but but yeah, so that that line, absolutely true love embedded in that line, no question about that. You're not going to get a disagreement from us on that. Dude, the cheek touch. The cheek touch. Oh, like, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then, and then puts her hand in. Oh, no, we can't talk about it. Can't talk about it. But, but yeah, absolutely true love embedded in that. Like, every, every ounce of it. Every pixel of the frame. But I don't think that she knew that that was love at that point. Um, and just as equally, I don't think that that montage scene um, where she's seeing various apparitions of Katra... Um, when she's in the sort of first one's tunnel network. I, I don't think that is a conscious acknowledgement. That is her subconscious actively trying to bust out 
Like, because what you have to remember is that entire scene in those tunnels, and I'm not going to talk about it too much, but the entire scene in those tunnels is her subconscious talking to her. This is the first one's memory technology at work. So it is pulling from her brain. Um, everything with the exception of Horde Prime in that scene is coming from her own mind. So this is this is her subconscious trying to communicate to her, hey, hey, stupid, you know, uh, wake up, you know, like <laughs> this this girl you might have a thing for, you know, it's it, but she doesn't know yet, and she really I don't think knows until that final bit, that final moment uh, in in part part two. I really don't think that she breaks through and acknowledges the reality of the situation until that scene she doesn't allow herself to that's the thing right we've talked about it again and again she won't allow herself to consider a future with her in it she won't allow herself to think about that it's all her duty is the only thing that comes first exactly exactly but again Try, trying to trying to reel it back in here we don't want to yep. we don't want to dig too deep a uh, too deep a hole up. here uh-huh that's correct um so yes uh, uh thank you for all of those questions charisma great stuff yeah super good stuff how do you take these next questions from sean about protocol yes we got protocol questions from sean uh hey jay nero Loved how you pointed out uh, that to calm herself down, Catra smooths her hair back. Now I can't unsee it every time she does it, like uh, in this episode. Yeah, it's once you notice it, it's like it's very obvious. You start noticing in other characters too that are paralleling her. Like you see that Glimmer does it sometimes. You see even Horde Prime does it. I think we mentioned that actually yes. in the in the last episode. Yeah, at the very end of uh, of Destiny Part Two, he he sort of smooths his hair back. Yeah, well, I guess less hair and more weird, wibbly Mountain Dew tentacles. Yeah, it's ten- tendril hair. You know how it'd be. Yeah, how it is. Uh, but a uh, couple of questions. Uh, first one is, why wasn't Lonnie made a force captain? Uh, and would that have made Catra's job easier having her as a right-hand man like Scorpia? Uh, I believe that Lonnie would have made an outstanding force captain and would have been uh, better able to uh, help Catra out. Uh, Lonnie is a good soldier. She starts off as a bully, uh, but when Catra gets promoted, she falls right in line. She takes care of her team and takes initiative. Uh, Catra obviously respects her uh, because she confides in her, uh, albeit while treating everyone, including her, like crap. And Lonnie replies with her her honest opinion when when she's asked, you know, like if if other people are, are laughing at Catra. Uh, not to mention, Lonnie's team seems to be doing really well in their battles out in the field. Uh, out of all the Horde soldiers, she actually comes off as uh, competent. Um, this is this is a good point. So I think that Lonnie definitely is like one of the more competent Horde soldiers that we see. Like the organization as a whole is a little bit um, mismanaged is a good word. Yeah. I mean, I'll say this, maybe if Catra had informed someone that Scorpia left, there could have been an opening for Lonnie, but she didn't tell Hordak any of that, and so there was no interest in seemingly... I I don't know if, like, you have... There, there's, like, a set amount of Force Captains that can only be there at one time, or if it's just whenever Hordak feels like he has something else he wants to delegate to someone else, he appoints a new Force Captain. It's weird, right? Like, the Horde, we don't really know anything about the Horde structure other than there are cadets, 
and there are force captains and there is hordak and that is like it yeah so and then there's shadow weaver who was like her own thing yeah she like wasn't even really like a force captain she was just there i don't know i think i think genuinely it is straight up like hordak was like oh yeah i'm gonna make my own army and he didn't really know what <laughs> how to do meant it or how to do it he didn't really know what the difference between like a non-commissioned officer and like a regular soldier was so he was just like oh yeah you know it's the grunts and then the cool guys and then me i'm the coolest guy you know which to be fair that is kind of how horde prime ran things because he just had an infinite number of clones and robots so he didn't really need like a structure yeah because it was all just straight up it was him and mini hymns yeah like that was it so it makes sense that hordak has no idea what an army is yeah it, it makes a lot of sense so so as far as like why was lonnie not made a force captain probably because hordak just didn't need another force captain at the time yeah he just didn't know he just the this whole thing if catcher was actually in charge maybe lonnie would be a force captain perhaps but like she's not it's hordak who's in charge and and he spent most of season four being very emo this is true also on top of that i think even if catcher was in charge maybe lonnie wouldn't make the cut because i think <laughs> catcher's catcher's still got some like some like childhood bully like uh like vendetta stuff going on you know what i mean yeah she'd probably be petty like that and just not make her a force cat she'd make her vice force captain god um all right next one is just realized that it's canon that it looks like everyone remembers what happened during the portal reality with lonnie mentioning quote that was the weird portal thing kyle so does shadow weaver remember being nice to katra uh does scorpio remember her interactions with adora yeesh um (laughs) it's so whack that they remember the portal i can't get over it really it's (sighs) wild to me like it is a bizarre decision like the so this is one of those things in the show that really doesn't make a lot of sense is there a reason like i'm 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 racking my brain is there a plot reason why that's necessary for people to remember like is there is there a bit where somebody remembering that the portal reality happened is like plot significant or like character significant I guess Adora remembering Angela's last words and being able to deliver those. Yeah, yeah, but but then like, you could just you could just say like you, yeah, she's, could just be Adora. she's Adora. She was there and like when the portal closed, right? She's Shira. She remembers stuff. Like yeah, it is. It's very bizarre that everyone else remembers it and it never really comes up other than in jokes like that. Yeah, I guess it's probably like a factor of like they wanted they wanted an excuse for it to be the case that the best friend squad and the princesses would be aware of what happened so they don't have to do like some sort of explanation scene afterwards but but that's the thing nothing happened yeah like nothing happened that affects yeah like i don't know it seems like it would have been less messy to just have there be like a scene where everyone's like, whoa, what happened? I don't, I have such a headache. And then Adora, it just like, the camera pulls back and it's like Adora explaining something, you know? I, I, I feel like that would have been totally, like, I feel like that would have yeah, worked. Like you, 
You can keep everything in with just Adora and Catra remembering the portal. Because Catra is tortured by guilt about the portal. Yeah. So, like, yeah. If they just if they were the only ones that remembered, which makes sense because like they were pretty much the last two who were still extant within that reality, other than Angela, um, and like Catra's the one who pulled the switch, and Adora is Shira. You could easily have them be the only ones that remember it, without like I think they they just wanted that as a funny line, uh, and they didn't think about the the full uh, ramifications of it. Yeah, no, I I think that's definitely a thing. Like. It's like the only thing in the whole show that I'm like, you know, CinemaSins plot hole ding uh-huh. about, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's like actually a plot hole, but it's like, it's just a weird decision. It's just weird. It's an unforced error. Like, they didn't have to do it like that. Yeah, it's it's just a little bit weird. That's it for the protocol questions from Sean. Uh, they do say, bum that we just got a brief cameo of Lonnie and team for season five. I wish season five had double the episodes to fit everything in. I know, right? I mean, that's the thing. That's the thing. It's like season five is so jam packed. It's like there is stuff that's left on the table. I movie what, that movie the movie the that movie, movie will be the horde um, cadet content we've been craving. The movie's going to be everything we want all at once, and it'll be great. And I am not building up any kind of uh, unrealistic expectations at all. And I won't be uh, on Twitter <laughs> saying uh, hashtag release the Stevenson cut afterwards. <laughs> uh, put that Stevenson cut up on HBO Max, the six hour Shira movie. <laughs> Oh, uh, God. What 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 movie do you want a four-hour cut of? The as-of-yet non-existent Shira movie. I would like that to happen tomorrow, as if by magic. Yeah, let's let's get let's let's chop chop chop. <laughs> DreamWorks, let's go. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, so Nixconia sent uh, a curious cat question at one point uh, on Double Trouble and Catra. Um, this was, this was actually the second part of a two-part question that we were saving. Um, Double Trouble comes from the Crimson Waste, which is an extreme environment having similar rules as the Horde, i.e. trusting no one, emotional kindness being seen as weakness, uh, fight for survival, etc., etc. Um, and if they have grown up in the Crimson Waste the same way, uh, Catra has been living in the Horde her whole life, uh, then do you think DT in some way... Um, consciously or not, uh, see themselves in Katra, and and therefore that's why they're able to kind of figure out her character so quickly and kind of uh, pick through all of the flaws that she has. Because you know, deep down there, they're very similar. Um, this is this is a good this is a good question. It's hard to say whether Double Trouble is that introspective. Yeah, like. To me, Double Trouble, well, one, obviously fairly narcissistic, but also, like, doesn't seem to care much for that kind of thing. Yeah, obviously they're an actor and they like to know what makes people tick, but I don't know if that extends to themselves. Like, do they know their character? Hard to say. Yeah, it's it's hard it's hard to say, right? Like, uh, like I, I feel like... On a completely subconscious level, uh, it's possible that there's there's like some internal similarities in such a way as that they feel like, you know, there's like more connective tissue there. It makes it a little easier to kind of bridge that character gap and, and understand Katra. But also, I, I don't know. It's 
I don't think Double Trouble is the kind of person who's going to like pick through their own head. Like they're 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 happy to pick through other people's heads. I don't think they're going to think about themselves. And a good example, actually, when the truth spell works on DT uh, during um, the uh, oh, what episode was it? Fractures. That's fractures. The end of fractures. Yeah. So during fractures, um, the uh, the truth spell works. And they say that thing about how they, um, the, the way that they can cry on cue is to, uh, to imagine, like, children, like, falling off of high services and, like, getting hurt. <laughs> just, <laughs> just imagining, like, AFV videos of, like... Yeah, just, like, America's Funniest Home videos, like, kids flying <laughs> off of, like, slides and... <laughs> you know they would, they would watch that every Saturday, but... Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, but afterwards they're like, oh, I've never told anyone that before. And like, and that like actually shakes them a little bit. And like, they they go back into their sort of, um, trickster demeanor afterwards. But that's one of the very few scenes that they have where they're visibly shaken. And that's not something that they were, they were planning on. So I, I can't imagine that DT likes to think about their own mental scape too often and hey i mean to be fair that is a pretty big similarity to catra yeah lack of uh internal uh internal uh analysis there so yeah i think they are very similar to catra but i don't think they are they're uh thinking about that consciously i think that they just happen to be drawn together because of that exactly exactly all right so here's one from frank and trapta on hordak and toxic masculinity Uh, Lots of people have acknowledged the cult-like religious aspects of Hordak's upbringing, but I've not seen anything about toxic masculinity's influence on it. There are no female clones. Horde Prime valued conquering above all else and looked down on weakness to the point that he'd send his clones to die if they showed any signs of it. All this time, Hordak has has been trying to prove to Horde Prime that he is a real man, i.e. not weak. He wears armor that makes him appear more muscular... Uh, he said and trapped his armor made him feel powerful i.e validated as a man which is something he probably hadn't felt in a long time i think there is something to this about hordak and horde primes like uh dynamic yeah i think there is something to this too i i don't know that this is like i feel like it's kind of subtle yes i don't feel like i was getting like a whole lot of like machismo coming off of like either of them honestly but uh but at the same time I think that there's definitely theming that can point in this direction. I think that, like, emotions being devalued, um, the the weaknesses being devalued, you know, uh, having having these these values uh, imposed on you of, of strength and control and and total like submission to this paternal figure. I think like. And the paternalism in general is very, very strong. So, so yeah, I, I think there's definitely something to this. And, like, when you think about what inspired Horde Prime's character, i.e., like, even, like evangelical megachurch pastors, right? Mm-hmm. That strain of Christianity in particular is extremely, like, patriarchal. Like, and it's also interesting, but it's also interesting that Horde Prime expressed interest in turning Catra into one of his vessels, right? Like, that's a weird aspect that's never really brought up about his plans. Yeah, it is strange. It's like, we don't know that much about, like, the chipping 
program that he runs. We don't know much about the purification process. Uh, we don't know much about how this is applied to non-clones, uh, if, it, if this is like a common experience or if this was like a special case, he did it just to like specifically toy with his enemy. Um, it's, it's hard to say. We don't know that much about Horde Prime's history. Um, the only things we really know are that he's very old and his empire has been growing uh, forever and that the first ones were an old were his you know quote-unquote old enemy so you know he's been around for a long time so it's entirely possible that he's done this sort of thing before um i think probably um catra being indoctrinated like that was uh to use her as a tool and to to get back at his old enemy and then probably she would have been discarded afterwards as as not being especially useful yeah right and again this is a parallel to these sort of evangelical organizations i mean there's uh there's uh, one in specific i can think of uh that i know from personal experience which were <laughs> it starts with a j and uh, ends with a w but um yeah so so yeah i think i think there is absolutely some toxic masculinity included in here because of course these evangelical organizations are really rife with it it's one of the core tenets of the thing is is this this sort of lauding of the the sort of strength and uh paternalism of of uh of men in positions of power well, we'll get way more into this when we talk about uh, the first episode of season five, which is, of course, titled Horde Prime. Mm-hmm. And we should also read Noel Stevenson's autobiography before we get to that episode, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would actually be a really good idea because I mean, we've been meaning to to do that that autobiography as a bonus episode for a while anyway. But yeah, I think that that would give us some like pretty cool insight for that for that one. Because they they obviously were raised in that kind of environment and took a lot of that from uh, took a lot of inspiration for Horde Prime uh, from that very clearly. Um, but that's that's for next episode. So next up, uh, how about you read this one from LC? LC uh, asks, uh, "Do you think while on the Velvet Glove, uh, Glimmer and Catra had some sort of relationship, and if so?" Uh, what do you think Horde Prime would think of it because he, you know, quote-unquote, sees all? Um, I mean, listen, there's loads of fan fiction you can read about just this very thing. <laughs> um, oh, yes, there's... I've, I've read a couple myself. A lot of, lot of very extended, uh, you know, prison cell scenes uh, in, in those fics. So... We don't... The, the time scale of how long Glimmer was in sp- is in space is kind of iffy uh it, it is clearly a while i think like uh i don't think realistically it's it's like within a week or a day or whatever uh, probably around a month uh, i would say um on catcher and glimmer having some kind of relationship that's not textual but obviously all of the the spicy implications that are well explored elsewhere and i think it's perfectly plausible yeah i think it's very plausible especially because this is a situation where these two characters who already definitely had tension like that's kind of indisputable i think these these characters that had tension have been forced together into a situation where 
Uh, they are all that each other has, and it's a very deadly, dangerous situation where one uh, is enough to really just end everything. So this this is a situation where that kind of tension is going to get amplified pretty hard. You know, if you're relying so heavily on another person and stuff, it's it's gonna it's gonna create some situations and i think especially like um the 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 scene where catra brings her like a slice of cake or whatever like that scene oh man yeah that that scene scene, i think totally points in this kind of direction and you know if they were on the velvet glove for like three or four months you know who's to say i could i could see it happening at some point if they were there for an extended period of time trying to kind of survive that's for what horde prime thinks uh i'm pretty sure he would only view it as more leverage over both of them like i don't think he really cares yeah i don't think that it's something that he would care about like he's he may be like a an evangelical stand-in but i don't think he's like you know an evangelical stand-in to that extent like i i think i think he would just be like oh yeah this is like i can use this to to get you to do what i want kind of thing like i'll threaten your your new girlfriend if you don't do what i say sort of thing it reminds me of uh noel and molly talking about how shadow weaver is not literally homophobic but kind of represents aspects of structural homophobia in the show. Right, exactly, exactly. We don't need to be that literal with Horde Prime. Uh, second part here. In Season 1, Episode 5, uh, they say that the Seagate was made by First One's magic. Uh, so when the First One magic is destroyed or released, does the Seagate also get destroyed or does it just get weaker? Well, <laughs> well... I don't think we got to worry about that one. Yeah, like, by the time all of that magic gets dispersed, like, we're done. Yeah. Hordes over the Seagate has no more function. Um, well, well, not just that. The Seagate is um pretty definitively broken before right. then. It did, it's, did it, got, it got melted. Yeah. So so that's, that's not exactly uh, on the table anymore. But if, in fact the the seagate had survived to the end of the war and uh then the the magic was released and the heart of theory was shut down i imagine that it would probably get weaker we don't actually know what the fate of the first one's technology on the surface is after the heart is shut down because you know the series basically ends like very shortly after that happens but um, we can make it, we can make inferences, right? Like the Crystal Castle uh, during Destiny, when Adora shatters uh, the sword and thus the connection from the Crystal Castle to the heart. Uh, the Crystal Castle shuts down; it's no longer capable of functioning because it no longer has access to that energy. So you can kind of take that and make an inference that maybe the heart of Etheria is the thing that has been keeping the first one's technology going all these thousands of years long after there's any reason for it to be running. So if that's the case, then yeah, probably afterwards it would just totally go dark. That's right. Um, We got one uh, from Rudy here. Hello. Sorry about the late question. Don't worry about it. That's what this episode is for. 
Um, so in one of the episodes, you mentioned you mentioned how the meeting didn't uh, go well, but it seems like any interaction between Glimmer and Adora has ended badly. I honestly don't know how much of that is them and how much was Double Trouble. Also, do you think Shadow Weaver is trying to drive them apart? And if so, how would that even benefit her? Well, I mean, on that last one, uh, isolating Glimmer would make it much easier for her to do uh, what she wants. Oh, yeah. Like, if Adora... I mean, Adora, at this point, is not, like, super susceptible to Shadow Weaver's wiles, right? She's She's pretty savvy to the kind of games that woman plays at this point, so... Shadow Weaver would have a pretty hard time getting into Glimmer's head if, you know, Adora was sitting on her shoulder, you know, saying, oh, that's, that's manipulation, uh, that's manipulation, that's manipulation, uh, that's manipulation, you know, like, like, it, it wouldn't go very well. So, so getting those two separate is pretty crucial to Shadow Weaver's entire plot. Yeah. As for the first part, like, yeah, Double Trouble is there exacerbating tensions and making sure that they don't resolve, but... They were already clashing and having friction even before they started their stuff. Yeah, like, um, if you remember really early on when DT was, like, first revealing that they were Flutterina, um, I think that very first, like, Skype call that they have with Catra is, like, you know, they, they mention, like, oh, you know, there's, seems like there's some some schisms forming uh, in the best friend squad would be a shame if someone exploited that and i think you know that's like the tension was there um dt just sort of you know poured water into the proverbial sidewalk crack on a cold winter day yeah um let's see next part here from rudy uh, also side note you mentioned that mermista was eating ice cream under the water but i think she could just make a bubble under the water so that the ice cream wouldn't get messed up. I mean, life hack. You're right. Put that. Put that on. Uh, put that on. Uh, five minute crafts. Just like make a little air bubble around her head <laughs> and, and torso, so she can eat the ice cream. There we go. I, that's definitely what was happening. Finally, in the fight scene at the end of the episode, uh, Glimmer and Adora are working together. But as soon as no one is in danger, uh, they go back to uh, fighting. It seems like there was an attempt to connect there. They still clearly care about each other, but they're in a rough spot. It reminds me of Glimmer and Bo in Season 5, uh, because Bo doesn't let her get hurt, but once he knows that Glimmer's okay, he goes back to being kind of aloof. Love your podcast, and sorry about the long email. Oh, don't apologize. We love getting this stuff. So, yeah, thank you for for enjoying the cast. But, um, uh, yeah, like we, we talked about this, actually, in the actual episode itself, right? So... They they have the fight scene during, you know, it's fun to, to fight with friends uh, at the end of the episode. And they, they have that moment where they kind of connect together and they look at each other and they smile and they're fighting together. And it's like big camaraderie moment. But at the end, the, you know, the things that were said were still said. The things that were done were still done. And, you know, Adora is not ready to just like let bygones be bygones when, you know, her best friend essentially blamed her for everything that's ever gone wrong and also the death of a really important person uh, to both of them. That's not just water under the bridge. That's going to take a second to repair. And the same thing goes for Bo, right? Like, during um, during Beast Island, Bo gets out a lot of his 
feelings while commiserating with Adora um, on those long walks through the island. You know, he's he processes his emotions quite a lot in that episode. He kind of goes from blaming himself to being like, no, wait, we didn't do anything wrong. And and he's the kind of person who like he's he's gonna hold that internally for a minute, right? Like he's got a very high tolerance. But when his tolerance is is broken, when that when that barrier is broken, it's it takes him a second to get over that. It, he needs not just like time, but also like you need to put in some effort on your end. So so with Glimmer, you know, he needs her to put in that effort, and then she ends up having to do that. Yeah. Um. And yeah, like like uh, like Rudy said here. He doesn't really allow himself to fully process his feelings until he knows Glimmer is safe. And then he kind of slips back into those and starts going through them again. Um, which is, I, I really like that episode of season five. Some might say it's a bit fillery, but I think it's actually quite important for that space, for that buffer to be there. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a really important episode. I'm I'm excited to get there because I actually really do want to talk about um, like Glimbo and how that's established and like how their relationship is, especially at the end of season four, after all of this stuff has gone down. Like, I, I think that it's, it's a really, it's, it's interesting. It's, I don't think that Glimbo is given enough time in the show, but what time it does get, I think is pretty good. So yeah, I'm excited to, to really dig into that. How about you take this uh, question from Rowan? Yes, so Rowan says, uh, hey, first off, uh, sorry if this is a really behind question. I was just rewatching with my wife and I noticed something we never saw before. No worries. Once again, this is this is what the emails are for. Um, when Adora, Glimmer, and Bo fall through the floor into Entrapta's lab after Glimmer talks to Angela for the last time, uh, we notice Entrapta working on some robots. Uh, the robots look like Scorpia and Hordak. Do you think she made them because part of her remembers them from before the portal opening? Uh, maybe they were deep-seated in her uh, subconscious. Uh, anyway, thanks for the podcast. It's really nice to listen and think back on so many small details that make the show awesome. And you guys do an amazing job rekindling the love for the show. Well, thank you. We, we appreciate that. We're glad we uh, we can provide fun content. But uh, but yeah, we, we, we talked about this a little bit in that episode, I think. Uh, we, we mentioned it briefly, at least. Um, definitely, yeah, those, those Scorpion Hordak bots are there. I I think definitely she made them because uh, she remembered them and she like was trying to uh, she she was she was rebuilding her her friends right yeah like she everyone kind of had brief like glimmers of of the of the past before the portal um, and and of course Entrapta being someone who was so isolated and friendless before all of that would remember the two people she forged the most connection with um and try to recreate that yeah for sure for sure so yeah i I wish they were around i think they disappear after that cutaway um just because i guess it would be it would be a bit of work to draw those unique looking robot models into all of them instead of just using the um the old entrapta models that we saw in the drill episode yeah Uh, i mean it's it's probably less that and more like it's just supposed to be like a like a pretty tiny detail i imagine it's more of like a not an easter egg but just like a like a small detail sort of thing yeah finally we have one last email here we're almost at the end 
from Crystal Germ, who is a, a Horde Cadet level patron on Patreon. Uh, they say, Hi, Nero and Jane. Recently started listening to your podcast and love it so much, especially the breakdowns and the spoiler zone. I haven't heard you talk about it before, so sorry if you've already covered this, but would you be able to talk about the power imbalance that is created when Glimmer becomes queen? Even from the start, Adora is usually the one coming up with the plans and being the leader in a battle. She grew up a soldier, so it makes sense. Everyone seems okay with this. They are happy to fight by Shira's side. The best friend squad all treat each other as equals for the most part, but when Glimmer becomes queen, it starts to annoy her more and more that Adora is taking charge. I know this is in part due to Adora's coddling and DT's meddling, but do you think that there are any other factors to it? Hmm. So there is that friction, right? They they are on something where where Glimmer before was just a commander, and like Adora didn't really have a rank, but they were pretty much on equal footing. Yeah. And and Glimmer was uh, was at the beck and call of someone else, and so when you have Glimmer now being the authority figure, now being the one in charge, technically holding authority over Adora and Bo, um, I think that does sort of that is a bit of her chafing against that stuff yeah i think so i mean like i'm the thing is right so like where were they before what was like their position as the best friend squad before you had um angela was the queen but she was really more of a facilitator she's the one who has access to resources she's not really the person coming up with plans she delegated that to other people that was the job of her of the bright moon guard commander that was the job of the princesses that was the job of glimmer and that was the job of Bo and dora and most of the time not always but most of the time adora was the one taking up a tactical leadership role she was the one coming up with the nitty-gritty of the plans you know she had the little figures that Bo made and she was the one who kind of forged the battle plans glimmer was always more of the hands-on person who just really wanted to get in there and improvise you know that's been that was like a really big portion of her character especially in like season three you know she's the kind of person who wants to get in there um for better or for worse and now that she is a queen she's not taking the same role that her mother did she's not being a facilitator she's being an active commander she's being the commander-in-chief she is the head of the military and now you have the dynamic shifted in such a way as that adora trying to maintain the role she's had the role of making tactical decisions now this is starting to rub up against glimmer because glimmer feels like her territory is being encroached on like she feels like her authority is being questioned but i don't really think that's necessarily the case and it's and i think pretty demonstrably it isn't you know most of the time adora's like concerns are pretty reasonable you know we can't have the leader of the entire alliance running off by herself into the very front of battle it's just simply not a good idea you know glimmer might be a very 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 powerful individual um in season four busted some might say but she's not uh invincible she's not infallible she's not omniscient 
she could definitely still fall into a trap. You know, enough firepower can still overwhelm her. She doesn't have an infinite amount of teleports. You know, presumably there is a limit to how much power she can use. And even if she's on top of her game 100%, there's always something she might not be prepared for. I mean, the big explodey bots are a good example of that. She does mop the floor with the with the bomb bots, um, but that's only after knowing what they are, how they work, and when they're not really focused on her. If she had been the one cornered by several of them uh, instead of Natasa and the gang, then would she have had such an easy time taking them all out? It's it's hard to say. She's she's powerful, um, but she's not all powerful, and I think she forgets that quite a lot. Yeah, um, I think you really hit the nail on the head there. Uh, Crystal Germ also brings up in the hero uh, when we see Raz going back and forth between the past and present. We see her tell Mara that the sword is not Shira, that she is Shira. It's a shame she never tells Adora this. I feel like it could have saved some time and grief. <laughs> right. I believe Adora doesn't start to realize this until stranded when she's holding up the cavern from falling down. Yeah, it would have uh, it would have saved a little bit of time. Yeah, but to Raz's credit, to Raz's credit, um, she I'm pretty sure she leads that sentence in by calling Mara Adora anyway. So I feel like I feel like she's trying. She's doing her it's, best. <sighs> It's really hard when you keep bouncing back and forth between time and also you're like a billion years old and you're already kind of scatterbrained. Yeah. So that doesn't help matters. I can't imagine her eyesight's great either. I mean, her prescription's like 700-700 probably. Listen, she was going to get there eventually. Um, <laughs> but, you know, just, or just figured it out first, right? So, you know. Uh, and finally... Did the Horde inadvertently stop the Heart of Etheria from being activated? By taking over the Black Garnet and Scorpia not having a connection, the planet wasn't balanced. Nearly as soon as she connects to her runestone, Lighthope is able to activate the Heart. If Scorpia had connected to it sooner or had been connected all along, could Lighthope have just activated the Heart as soon as Adora became She-Ra? I think so. Uh, I've thought about this, actually. So I don't think immediately. Um, remember, Light Hope's like, capacity to do stuff was pretty heavily damaged. A lot of facilities were damaged, the Watchtower included. Yeah. Um, and these are things that Adora has repaired over time. We know the Watchtower isn't the only thing that she's had to fix. Like There are other instances where she's had to go out on a mission uh, to fix some stuff for Light Hope. Uh, the watchtower is obviously like the most important one, but like there's there's more than one thing she's had to fix. So, um, but presumably, if the horde never showed up and the planet was balanced already, you know, all the Shira would have to do is walk in, plug a couple of rocks back into other rocks, and there you go, just fire it off. Yeah, like it. Yeah, she would have just been able to send Adora on a few errands and not even bother with any of this training stuff. Um, so yeah, thanks, Hordak, I guess. Yeah, I guess, I guess thanks? Uh, God. Sort of. Uh, but that brings us to the end of our emails. We're, we, we got through this whole big old document. Yes, we did. Nine pages of emails down and only two hours, actually. That's, that's shorter than I was expecting. Yeah. Um, and of course, now we come to the part where we've got plugs and such. Yes. Uh, fun fact. I don't know if you know this or not, but... 
have Patreon. We do. Patreon.com slash pod of power. You can find all sorts of things over there, such as our two side uh, side shows where we watch uh, Kipo and the Age of Wonder Beasts and the Owl House, respectively. And soon, since we're coming up on the end of the Owl House's episodes that are currently available, we will be starting Infinity Train, book one. Yes. Excited for that. I'm excited to see the Corgi King. Um, we also have She Riffs, where we watch old episodes of the original she and make jokes about it. This, uh, latest one should be coming up soon. It is on the two-parter Anchors Aloft, which is a Seahawk-based episode, and boy, 80 Seahawk is a time. Oh my god, he is. Uh, it's, it's quite a, quite a pair of episodes, these, um you'll uh you'll you'll get a kick out of that uh we also have we have various bonus episodes we do uh like we said earlier we're planning on doing one about noel stevenson's autobiography uh before we get to uh that one episode of season five so yeah it's quite a few quite a few things that's right and of course you know we'll also be talking about the the fanfic uh and that annotated save the cat script around that time as well so keep an eye out for that and of course our stretch goal still remaining so very close to being completed the for the honor stretch goal we will do an actual play one shot campaign of the firebrands hack for the honor oh yes that's gonna be fun it's again both of us big big ttrpg nerds and i'm excited to try that out especially because it's like it's like a dmless experience apparently which is kind of cool yes it is a dmless game so that's a great time and of course if you're a three dollar patron you get shout outs at the end of every episode and this week is no exception so thank you ross ivy emma lynn ashley butcher autumn keys anelia cody Haley moreland yusuf gurch ashley kyra williams mabel mabel ryan coon jennifer jones jess pumphrey leon lay sean montgomery jack onuro olivia Brittany ray michael steinert tara stark uh tco brennan fitzgerald tobu emma grossman and robert harris thank you very much yes thank you as always your support means the world to us it's uh it's super fun getting to do this and uh we both love uh making all kinds of stuff for you guys to listen to uh, we are also on twitter at podcast of power uh find all sorts of updates over there uh links to our curious cat and whatnot our gmail is uh at pot of power at gmail.com um i don't know if we're going to we'll probably do an email episode after season five. Oh yeah definitely we're gonna do an email episode after season five so yeah if you want to you want to get in some some more email questions then yeah definitely feel free to send them in we will get to those that's right and uh if you want more of me in particular you can find me over at disney minus at disney minus pod on twitter we talk about stuff that's on disney plus latest episode was on zootopia a movie that has a pretty good second act but is boy it's dragged down by its allegory uh very badly yeah it's got some it's a little bit fraught next uh next episode though a goofy movie certainly not as fraught certainly way more fun 
Oh my god, it's been ages since I've seen that. That's going to be a fun one. Yes, I'm really looking forward to it. I've never seen a goofy movie, by the way. Really? Not once. Wow. No, okay, I you're haven't. you're in for you're in for a treat. That movie is actually pretty good. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I think I'll be I'll, I'll get a lot of enjoyment out of it. I'm a goof head. I, I'm I'm a big goofy fan. You could say. Yeah, goofy. Like, hey, listen, you like goofy. I feel like that movie has better goofy characterization than like anything else ever. Well, yeah. Mostly because it gives him a character. All right. Uh, But with that, I guess we will sign off and we'll see you. We're taking a week off, of course, uh, after this, uh, this, this email episode as we do every time. Uh, But we will be back soon with uh, the start of season five, uh, the big one, the final season. Oh yes, so uh, so get ready. It's it's gonna be quite a bumpy ride. I'm sorry, but until then, I have been one of your hosts, Nero, and I've been the other host, Jane. And we'll see you on the other side of Podcast Spondos.